All right, the rest of us can turn to Romans chapter 8. And we are jumping into the last paragraph of Romans 8 today. And anticipate being in this, verse 31 through 39, two to three Sundays as we conclude this chapter, which many propose is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. I think it's a wonderful chapter, something we need to give our attention to. And that will really, once we finish Romans 8 in a couple of weeks, that will finish out the first major section of Romans. So remember, we're kind of breaking up this book into three major sections, 1 through 8, 9 through 11, and then 12 through 16. And so we will finish up chapter 8. There will be a small break in between chapters 8 and 9 before we jump back in. Um, I've got a little mini-series I was going to bring out of the Old Testament for a handful of weeks, and then we'll time for our... um, Uh, Christmas messages and such and a New Year's message here and there. So then what we'll do is jump back into Romans 9. I didn't want to begin it and then interrupt it because we're going to have to stay with Paul's train of thought there in those three chapters that deal largely with the Jewish people. I think it'll be relevant to uh, the world stage right now in addition to some other salvation issues that come up and Paul addresses them and our relationship uh, in, in, with the Jews in that. So we'll be beginning that right at the turn of the new year. Chapter 8 is a chapter of assurance. It's all about really what we just sang, which we know uh, we are assured of the fact that we are saved and that that status as saved people, as children of God, does not change, cannot change. Christ Himself holds fast His people. God has made arrangements, if you will, through Christ and by His Spirit to ensure that the people of God end up with Him forever in glory. Do you remember Romans 8 begins with this idea that there is no condemnation to the people of God, no possibility. If you right now can say in your heart and mind, you know I'm a justified person, I'm trusting in Christ, he's saying that can never change. Like there's no possibility, that's what he's saying, no possibility at all that you could be condemned. And by the end of chapter 8, there is no possibility that you could be separated from God's eternal love set on you in Christ. So it begins with no condemnation, ends with no separation. Even through the trials of life, which he brings out in the middle portion of this passage of the whole chapter Romans 8, the suffering, the backdrop of suffering, as we walk through this sinful, uh, suffering world, we need to know these things. We need to be armed with this truth. But there is no condemnation to us, and there is no separation from us. Then beginning of verse 31, there is this grand crescendo of these themes, where Paul is just using a series of questions 
and answers really to assure us of this conclusion. Let's begin reading in verse 31. We'll just read through the end of the chapter. As always, we'll pause and ask God to help us understand what we're reading and understand what we're hearing, and then we'll jump in. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pause and ask His blessing on these words. Father, we are in need of Your Spirit's help now and guidance to give us eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to understand these truths, and for these truths to have the effect in our hearts that you desire and designed for them, that we would become a people astonished with your saving grace shown to us. Will you help us with that, please, now? For the sake of your people and for the name, your name's sake, amen. Look at the first question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? He's drawing a conclusion here with a question. What response is the idea. What response should we have to the things that we've been talking about? To this gospel that's been unfolded before us, this good news about God's working on our behalf through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. I mean, what do we say to these things? How do we respond to these things? get the most out of that question and frankly I've 
to get the most out of everything Paul is about to say here and continue to ask and continue to answer and continue to conclude. We have to understand what is going on within him at this point. As any good teacher of God's Word, he's feeling what he's teaching. And as he himself is pondering it, within his heart is evoking worship of God himself. A real amazement, really, at what God has done through his own teaching and what he himself is pondering. He gets to the point where he's going to draw it to a conclusion, this grand crescendo of praise. What shall we say to these things? Friends, when you think about the gospel and what God has done for you, do you ever feel this way? Do you ever feel, think, wow, what shall I say about this? This is so wonderful. This is amazing. Do you ever get excited or overwhelmed with the goodness of God to you? Friends, I'm convinced that we always need many revivals, personal revivals in our own hearts and minds. As we walk through this world that is so hostile to spiritual work, we sometimes can get drugged down and we have before us always the cares of this life and the things that we're walking through And there can be a spiritual deadening in us that we grow cold in these things. Remember Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Alka Indians who was killed by them actually, but reading in his biography once and he said, I need to go home and I need to defrost my soul. By that he meant he needed to go home, get in the Word, he needed to pray, he needed his soul defrosted because this... The world is so cold towards spiritual fervor. It isn't helping in the sense of making us spiritually fervent. It can actually have a deadening effect, a freezing effect. We need to spend time rehearsing God's goodness to us in Christ just like Paul's been doing here so that those truths can defrost our souls and then we're in the end saying what shall we say to these things if you don't have that I'm not here to discourage you I'm here to encourage you to pray for it and then take the time necessary to ponder these truths, because remember we've talked about this, right, as a people. The way the Bible works is like this, or one of the ways it works. As you think about these things, as you ponder spiritual truths, in time, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit enlivens that in your heart and defrosts your soul and revives you. 
And I've brought this problem up before because it's unique to our culture and our situation in the time in which we live. Often what we want to do when we're not feeling that wonder and amazement of God and His gospel towards us is we become deadened so we turn to other things to enliven our souls. We turn to the things of the world often to entertaining things that at least for the time that we're indulged in those things, they are enlivening our souls to a degree. And sometimes we can turn to sinful things that will help our souls feel some way in which we want to feel. But I would argue that we should focus on these things. What shall we say to these things? Man, if I were to say, if I were to ask anybody in here, what things is he talking about? If your child were reading this, if you have kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews and they read this verse through, hey, what, what are these things that he's talking about? Could you tell this child what these things are and why they're so wonderful and why they're so assuring for our salvation and why we should be so enthusiastic about them to the extent that we're willing to be like a sheep led to the slaughter because we believe these things. How much time do you give to these things as compared to other things in your life? I would say, Christian person, that these things are the food of our soul. And that many Christians are starving. Their souls are starving. They're born again. And they're saved and they're justified. But because they give no attention to these things, I mean almost none, their souls are starving. So they hear Paul say, what shall we say to these things? I don't know, Paul, what shall we say to them? These things are such a gift of God to us. These are the things that God gives us. He shares with His people so that they can treasure them and love these things and know Him more and feel for Him as He wants His people to feel for them, for Him. What are these things that Paul is talking about? Well, on the one hand, these things most certainly, because he's about to draw a conclusion here and transition into what we call chapter 9. For him, it was just the next portion of what he wanted to write to the Romans. He's drawing a conclusion of this whole first main section of the book of Romans. He began, if you remember, and we walked through it in detail. First three chapters are all about God's wrath 
against every single human being on the planet because we're all in rebellion against Him, right? That's a good way to summarize it. So you get to chapter 3 and you're standing in His courtroom and you've got no response. Every mouth is stopped and everyone is held accountable before God, right? But then he breaks in with the good news of the gospel. Begins in chapter 3, verse 21, with Jesus Christ on the cross, right? The centerpiece of what we believe. The centerpiece of what we proclaim. The only way and means a human being can be made right with God, right? Through that cross work of Christ where he is atoning for the sins of his people. Then he goes on into how we come into this relationship with God, of course, it's through faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Just the same as Abraham was justified, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now you believe God and it is accounted to you as righteousness. You believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be justified was the key word. He will declare you righteous. He will remove from you all of your sins. It's as though you've never sinned. And more than that, He credits with you the righteousness of Christ Himself. The rightness of Jesus and everything He did, said and thought, credited to your account so that you stand before God as a justified person. Then He went into talking about our battle with sin Chapter 6 and 7, and yet the victory over it because we are no longer slaves of sin. And even the very power of sin has been broken in our lives. And then, of course, chapter 8. This wonderful chapter of the Spirit and His work within us. Enabling us to live for God. Assuring us of our salvation. The Spirit Himself assuring us that we're children of God. Enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father, praying for us, interceding for us. Even through all of the suffering, the Spirit is with us and is helping us. So I think in one sense, when Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Our answer could be, it's everything he's been unfolding about the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of the letter till now. And he's about to wrap this up and go into a new topic. But I also think there is a special sense in which these things are referring to what he just talked about. What we spent about three weeks on, verses 28 to 30. Look at this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good for which it works. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? Do you see how that flows? Quite naturally. Some of the things we've already talked about in the earlier chapters, justification, earlier on in Romans, glorification, that means you end up with God, you're glorified human being, risen with Christ, become like Christ. We spent about three uh, weeks on a few words here defining them. The idea of those He foreknew, or those whom He predestined, or those whom He called. You'll remember that foreknowledge wasn't God looking down the channels of time to see who would believe, because if He did that, He would see no one would believe. 
But foreknowledge scripturally means that God chose us, chose you as an individual from before the foundation of the world, set His eternal love on you and predestined you to be in His family. You know, when Christians hear that, the question that they answer, I ask always is, why did He choose me? It's a good question where there's no answer to it. And Moses even said that, you know, the things that are revealed are given to us. But there are secret things that are only with God. What you do know is that He didn't choose you because you were in some way less sinful than other people. He didn't choose you because you were more wise or smarter. He thought, man, I really need him on my team. This wasn't like elementary school picking of teams, you know. This is mysterious. But he chose you. And in love he predestined you to adoption as sons. All according to the good pleasure of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. These things that Paul is explaining are the deeper truths of the gospel. They're outflowing from the gospel itself. They're deeper truths of it. Things that God was under no obligation to tell us about. Did you know that? God did not have to tell us about these things. And I'm really, let's hone in on these three, foreknowledge, predestination, and calling, because these three have become controversial in church history. Christians debate them, right? We all know this. It's the big pink elephant in the room when you start talking about these and preaching about them. These are the things that Paul is marveling about. Let's park here for a moment. The last two weeks when we talked about foreknowledge or election, it's the same thing, predestination and that effectual calling of those whom he has chosen and those whom he predestines into his family. I want to make a few things clear. First off, these things, these things that He reveals to His people and teaches them these deeper truths of the gospel are not for unbelievers. These things have been revealed to us, His people, so that we have a deeper understanding and appreciation of His love for us and his salvation of us. But these are not really for unbelievers. What do I mean by that? We don't hide them from unbelievers. But friends, these are not the things you evangelize with. I would say this. You should never, I mean, make a little rule to your, a little mental note. When you're evangelizing, never talk about the doctrine of election. That's not a relevant factor in evangelism. The message that God has for a lost and sinful world is very simple. 
It is that we are all sin, they, they are sinners, they are under God's judgment, but God in His love sent His only Son who became a man, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sinners, rose again the third day, and anyone, and I mean this, anyone, whomsoever will, that wants to be saved and realizes they need to be saved and looks at Jesus and believes in Him will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. You're not bringing up anything else when you're talking about that. That's the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. These things in Romans 8, many of them, most of them, are for the people of God to grow in their understanding of God's gospel to them. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have Eternal life doesn't bring up election, predestination, foreknowledge, effectual calling, none of these things. It is a simple message of a loving God to save His creation and people out of it who provides His Son as the only means of that salvation. So please... I want everyone in this room to believe these things from Romans 8 and later on these things from Romans 9. I want us all on the same page on that doctrine of election. I'd love it. Predestination, all of those things combined, but these are not the things that we're evangelizing, friends. Second, these things, especially foreknowledge, predestination, and effectual calling, do not stop or hinder our evangelizing or give us the excuse to not evangelize. These are really given to us and should fuel our evangelism. Some of the greatest missionaries who have ever lived have believed these things as I've been putting them forward to you. The founder of the modern missions movement, William Carey, was such a man. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is the, the most used preacher, I think, of all time in the history of this world. You can still buy the volumes of his sermons. He preached in the 1800s in London. He had one of the first megachurches. And he preached a sermon called A Defense of Calvinism. But his heart was always beating for the saved to be lost. His theology fueled his preaching to the lost. And people to this day get a hold of his letters, they get a hold of his sermons, and are still being brought to Christ through it. This doesn't stop our evangelism, friends. It fuels it. It fuels it because we know there's no lost cause. There's no one whose heart is so hard that God cannot save the person. He even asked Israel, is my arm shortened somehow that I can't redeem something with me maybe? Maybe their hearts are too hard. Maybe they, they've just gone too far now 
into sin, and I just don't have the ability to save them. That's not how it works. I see people like us who believe in these things, as Paul's putting them forward in Romans 8, and later on in Romans 9, when we have an understanding of how salvation works, we then go out confidently knowing no matter who we evangelize, God can save them too. I can remember going into the jail in Rockford, teaching up there, proclaiming the gospel, thinking two things all the time. Number one, there is literally no difference between me and them in our souls by nature. Not one difference between me and the person that ended up in that room. But also knowing that that means there's no difference in the way God could save them just as He saved me, you see. You have to have that kind of mentality when you come at this. This is why the Apostle Paul is such an important figure in church history. The Apostle Paul, what, uh, his Greek name, his uh, Roman name is uh, Paul. His Hebrew name is Saul. That's how you're introduced to him in the book of Acts. And when you're introduced to Saul, what's he doing? He's persecuting the church. He was a Pharisee that believed that this infiltration of this new professed Messiah, Jesus, and his followers as they're going around proclaiming the name is going to slow down the actual coming of the actual Messiah. He hated the gospel. He hated the people of the gospel. He hated the church and was so hard-hearted against them, he would actually indiscriminately capture, imprison, beat, and kill both men and women who believed in the gospel. And he was on his way to Damascus to do the same thing. The pictures of Romans or Acts chapter 9 is one breathing out threats and slaughter. Literally, as he's riding, he's snorting out what he's going to do to these people, these Christians, when he gets them. If there was ever a lost cause, it was the Apostle Paul. His heart was so hardened against Jesus Christ. But then, of course, Jesus Christ showed up. And Paul's heart in a millisecond was changed from, I hate Jesus, to, what do you want me to do, Lord? And he turned him around and he made a preacher to the Gentiles, of all things, to the nations, this Jew of Jew. You see, that's there because then people would say, and he said this, he flat out said this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And right before that, he had recounted, before Christ, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor against the church of Jesus Christ. What made the difference in Paul is that God changed his heart. God rescued him in grace. And he's put forward, he says here, so that all would know, so that there would never be a doubt. Because a lot of you in here, you think, no, I was the worst of sinner. I was the worst of Paul. I did this, this, and this, and this. No one in this room was actively killing Christians in an effort to stop the gospel progress. Paul did. He said, I'm the chiefest of sinners, the foremost put forward of that, so I could be the chiefest of an example of God's saving grace so that evangelists would know there's no lost cause now. You go preach the gospel to everyone because it is God who saves and that those who want to be saved would know I can be saved. If God could save Paul and do what he did with Paul, then God can save me, you see. His example of grace. Our theology 
should actually be fueling our evangelism. When you get done reading through Romans 3 and the depravity of man, boy, if you believe what that says, and we do, about the condition of human beings, we should all just throw up our hands and say, then what is the point? But then when we understand how God works and what God does and how God saves, we know there's hope. So we go and evangelize. We have the great privilege of being the instruments through whom the gospel goes. Just think about that. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, but God doesn't send angels to evangelize. He sends us and empowers us and equips us, and as we're sharing, we're knowing, God, unless you change this person's heart, unless you call them. They're not going to believe. I've shared this with them countless times. Change their heart, you see. Some of you need to look up the account of Rosaria Butterfield this week. Rosaria Butterfield. Anybody heard of her? How many of you know who I'm talking about there? There's a handful of you. Here was this liberal, far left-wing Uh, professor, uh, feminist, hated Christians, hated everything they stood for. Some pastor gets involved in her life just to discuss with her the gospel, invites her over to his house, and she's wanting to ask him questions. Why do all Christians hate us uh, homosexuals and so on and so forth? God ends up saving this woman. She just published a new book, She gets invited to speak at conferences and women's ministry events as an example of the grace of God that there's no lost cause. Who are you thinking right now in your mind that person could never be saved? Do you know that's not a biblically accurate thing to say? God is in the business of changing minds and hearts and wills. J.I. Packer introduces his book, Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God, with that point. He said, all of you believe these things, these things of election and predestination and God's effectual calling. You just don't, you don't know you believe it, but you believe it. And he said, let me prove it to you. You all pray for God to save lost people. God, change their hearts. God, draw them to you. God, save them. God, give them faith. God, bring them to conviction of themselves. God, bring them to the ends of selves and then show them Jesus Christ. No matter how you pray it, you're all praying for the sovereignty of God to display His grace in the heart of a person. And you're not thinking God's up there saying, boy, I really wish I could. But they have free will and I just got to leave it at that. So I'll just sit here and hope upon hope. You know instinctually these things. They help us in our evangelism. They don't stop it. They inform us in our evangelism of how salvation works. They make us dependent on God so that we're not turning to stupid, modern paradigms of ministry that we think, well, if we can just be cool enough for people. Man, I'll just be cool enough and then they'll think Jesus is cool too, so let's all be cool. And that wouldn't be a problem for me, but we got Graham Parkers running around, guys. 
it's the advantage of being the full-time preaching pastor, right? So you'll have to wait a month or so until you're up here preaching soon. It keeps us from becoming gimmicky in our services. You know, isn't it just sometimes, I'm sorry, but isn't it sometimes you see these things on YouTube, pastors are doing their, what are they, repelling into their pulpit, you know, they don't even have, they're repelling in onto the stage, they're doing all these silly things. It's just silly. Isn't it embarrassing? Sometimes I don't even like to tell people I'm a Christian. It isn't because I'm afraid of Jesus. I'm afraid of some of his, I'm ashamed of some of his people. I don't want to be lumped in with them. I don't want to have to put out like 20 qualifiers. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that person or that kind of guy or that whatever. It's silliness. And it's all fueled by a lack of understanding of these things. Because if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation, then yeah. If you believe that everything, must, everything turns on that person's will, then you will become just like Charles Finney who invented this. He didn't believe these things as we believe them and he believed that what you had to do was you have to manipulate the will. You have to keep, keep that invitation at the end with just as I am going and going and going to get people just so they'll just get up off their seats and come on down. You actually have to plant people within your congregation or within your evangelistic meeting to come down first so they'll feel comfortable come down because you think salvation is all about them walking to the front. It's foolishness. And it's not found anywhere in the Scripture. It is God who saves through the simplicity of the message preached and proclaimed to His people. Thirdly, these things, as Paul calls them, about our salvation are designed for comfort, not conflict. These are certainly things that we can discuss and help people come to a right conclusion about these things or our understanding of what the Bible teaches about these things, but some of these discussions turn more into heated, angry debates. I've heard of relationships ending because of these things. These things were designed for us, for our comfort, not for conflict. And if you believe these things, you know, if you know these things, you know the things I'm talking about, so I'll keep saying these things. But if you believe these things, as we've been proposing, don't become obnoxious with this. It can happen. Sometimes people who weren't taught these things all of a sudden believe these things. They see it and they're like, wow, this is true. I've never been taught this before and I'm really angry about that and I need everybody else to believe exactly what I'm seeing in these things. And you don't understand it took you time to see these things, right? And fourthly, even though, though that these things have the potential to be contentious, they are nevertheless designed by God to be confidently proclaimed to His church. These things were not revealed to us by God so that his, the church, preachers of the churches would hide them from people or talk over them or talk past them or 
kind of take a detour around him so that they don't upset people because after all, people believe different things about these things. That's not the right way to view it. A preacher, one with a gifting to preach and teach to the church, should say what the Bible says unashamedly, very clearly, preach exactly what God has said, not be ashamed of it because God's not ashamed of it. And God's not afraid of a little controversy. He's proven that through the centuries. And in his son, I had lunch with a number of pastors once and these things came up and one of the pastors was asked, what do you think about these things? And he said, well, I believe them. I believe in election, predestination. But he said, I preach, I want to preach in a way that my people don't know what I believe. I'm like, I didn't understand that. I still don't. Do you really want a preacher like that, honestly? That's afraid of something God has said or his conviction about it? Different if he said, I don't know what I believe on that, so I'm not going to preach it. But he knows what it is and he knows what it says and he knows what he believes about it, and he doesn't want to preach it, that's just wrong. I love the account of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. Remember Micaiah the prophet? Just this little snippet of him in there. Kings of Judah and Israel were gathering together to join forces against Syria. And they had gathered 400 prophets before him, right? Before the kings. And all the prophets said, yeah, you should go up. Go up against them. The Lord will give them to your hand. And the one king asked the other, well, you don't have any other prophets here that might say something different? He said, well, we do. His name's Micaiah, but I don't like him because he always says things I don't like, you know. And he said, well, you should probably call him in. The messenger goes to get Micaiah and says, the kings want to see you. All the other prophets, all the other prophets have said such and such. You need to say such and such. Micaiah said, as the Lord lives what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. That's the heart of a prophet. That's the heart of a preacher and teacher. This is what the Lord says. This is what we teach. Paul said in Acts 20, verses 26 to 27, Therefore I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth, wander off into myths. And that leads me to this, this concluding Remark that was going to be the beginning of the sermon of Romans 8, 20, or 31, but we'll have to pick up here next week. These things are given to us to encourage us in hard times, to give us confidence in difficult times, to know that no matter what is happening, God's love for us has not been removed. Our salvation has not been lost. God is not angry with us. To know that no matter what we're walking through, and even as we walk into a more hostile world, friends, a, a world that is more hostile to Christianity, these things are given to build us confidence. That's what he says. What shall, shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? These things teach us that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, the world's afraid right now. They're admitting it. Not Christians. Because we know these things. And we believe these things. And it means that God is for us. We'll pick up here next week. Father, thank you for your word. We treasure it. We profess it. We pray that it would have its effect among us as you have designed. Even as we turn to the Lord's table now, we thank you for this memorial of our rightness with you through Jesus Christ, your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.